Hello and welcome to Adam vs. the Man. Today is Thursday, August 6, 2020. It is an interesting time to be alive, is it not? Comment Jim Freedom in studio with us today. Producer CJ joining us from South Dakota. We got a. I, I hope I was hoping today would be the day we really don't have to talk about coronavirus, and so we're gonna we're or COVID nineteen or I, I feel like they're about to roll out a new name for it, or 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 for the crisis. You know, I've 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 I went from. I mean, I'm just referring to it as coronaphobia still. That that's that's the the phenomena that we are experiencing as a whole more like overshadowing whatever the virus reality itself is. I didn't even want to talk about I, I can't I, I I want to talk so today like I've got a bunch of news stories that I'm piling up for tomorrow to get into like the the, the latest medical fear porn. I mean like that's what that's what like Corona survivors have brain damage and hair falling out and and loss of smell and taste that persists and you go, oh my God. like and it, it studies may indicate, and you're like, <sighs> so I, I feel like part of the big news service that I do for people, because in reading the news, a, a big thing that, that a lot of news outlets do is a means of inserting their perspective or editorial into things, aside from just, you know, in, in the news itself and in the selection of, of, of the news. But specifically, when they, when they select news that is preliminary, you know, when they're trying to blow something up in advance, when they're, you know, and, and actually later in the show today, uh, there is something that is worth checking in on live, we're going to go to, uh, there, there, there's, uh, you know, I, 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 it's not a priority story for me, but it's one of these things, like, they, they, they want to suck you away off, uh, you know, of, of more important things to pay attention to, it's a way to manipulate your attention by saying, this may that, like, something may happen in the future, like, one of the things like I was I was complaining about uh, you know on 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 social medias uh, was the the independent story you know independent.co.uk was saying uh, Trump will delay elections or or deny election results if he wins and then the, the, right there the subtitle was or sub headline was may and you go will do that may do that could or it was could it was could it was will versus could and you go. Screw you! Like really, real, and and so there's a lot of stuff, and even stories that people want me to cover here, you know. And I'm sorry, we're getting we're getting a lot in the producers club, and I don't mind if people are going, "Hey, this is a story worth paying attention to." Adam tracking, like, and I do, but I choose carefully the point at which I decide to go into a story, timing wise. At least, you know, I do my best to, to be conscientious of that. I hope I hope our audience appreciates that, and given. Given the recent surge in, in viewership and, and, you know, seeing just the, the value of putting out consistent content and, uh, you know, it's, it's possible because, you know, we've had, we've had a, a, just a, a great number of people now, like, just consistently joining uh, Patreon at, at the $1 level. And that's great. Really, it's $10 level is where it's at. Uh, the Producers Club, you get to join the Patreon-only a producers club chat. Well, it's, it's not Patreon only because there are other ways you can get in the producers club, right? You can win membership. We're most do we have something today for that, Jim? Uh-huh. Because, if we name that trivia game. I mean, we do like nobody. So 
Wednesday, next week, we're going to do the panel properly. We learned from our mistakes yesterday. It's going to be a lot smoother doing the Cannabis in America 2020 panel. And it's going to end with a trivia game where the panelists have to write their answers and flash them on screen. I think it's kind of a cool way of doing trivia online or in the age of cell phones where it's still like, even if you use the internet, it, it, do you have the information on top of your head? Because you've got to write, you're going to be the first one with the answer, or you're going you're, you're to win the point. Uh, but also some really fun subjective stuff. So they're all going to have to have like a whiteboard like, like I use here. By the way, we're going to do the curve of tyranny chart tomorrow. I'm, I've, I've been putting together my thoughts and a couple other stories. For those of you who've been watching for the last few months, you recall when this started happening, and, and, and as soon as they did the, oh, we, we have to flatten the curve. Remember, it was like, yeah, here's the here's the, how it could be if we don't take all these measures and shutdowns and social distance and blah, 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 and there's going to be a spike in cases, and that curve is going to get us to a point where it's going to cross the line at which hospitals are overburdened. I mean, I, I feel silly. Like, I, I got to remind people of this. But, yeah, we really do, and we have to remind ourselves and, and of, of what they were saying, like not let them get away with this misdirection. So the, it was we have to flatten the curve. The, 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 there's no other significant threat that we know of. It's it's yeah, it's a bad funky flu, but it's got a unique death rate. That was that was the story, and and we have to make sure that that we, you know we can handle this. And we've by all of their metrics flattened the curve. But I mean, I, you can't even buy that. So what I did is I started tracking. The curve of tyranny that goes with that. And as I said in my analysis, the curve, like, it goes up, but it, it keeps going, and then it steps down. Governments don't give up their power in smooth processes. And really, it, it stepped up. That was one thing I got wrong with my – well, actually, I made it a straight line up, <laughs> which is I – think, I think that's fair. Uh, and it's a straight line of the curve of tyranny going up, of the increase in government power – and control and reduction freedom under the coronavirus. Yeah, it should have been. A, it really should have been a series of vertical lines. Thank you, Jim. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that chart now is kind of pressing. And, and what what uh, Jeffrey Tucker has in his article is that that actual graph uh, tracking government. Uh, if I, if, I don't want to misrepresent. It. We're going to get into that tomorrow and have a whiteboard session today. Big econ block. But first, let's let's go to CJ before we go to comments and check in with Jim here in studio. CJ has some exciting news. I mean, you know, and, and I'm always suspicious of numbers, but like this is—I don't think YouTube is like faking things in our favor almost ever. Like I don't think that happens. Um, but yeah, YouTube views are up, and CJ let, has been peeking under the hood recently. What what's the good news, brother? Adam, you send me down rabbit holes. <laughs> That's the good news. Okay, more rabbit holes as, as you wish, sir. This is this is this is where I, I tell you I go into the Google. So so okay, real quick, test this with me. Who owns YouTube? Google Alphabet. Alphabet Google. You know that that entity. Now you can go into all the back office, the techie stuff that you don't want want to hear about ninety nine point eight percent of the time. And you can learn a lot. And uh, so in setting up the Adam versus the Man website, which I think is getting better, and, and just to do a live check, just, I mean, we're still under construction, but uh, we have uh, the, it should be live right here. 
if I'm not mistaken. Or actually, I think uh, we've hit a quota. And, and so there's a certain quota where, and it's hard to explain. Consider quota don't like. Try, no, don't try. No, 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 don't, no, no, because no, it, it explains. It, no, 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 it explains a lot. Consider quota like data. And once right. you reach a certain point, YouTube triggers certain things that uh, happens to your data uh, in the network. And unless you're sort of given the okay by Google, your numbers won't go anywhere. So you start to tinker with things, and you start to plug in the numbers and apply the way they want, and all of a sudden, you get to start to see the real analytics behind the Google's account that's there. So, uh, yeah, YouTube tells us that in the last 48 hours, we've had 1.2 million views on our content tracked through various, you know, algorithms into Google. So, Regardless of the censorship on the uh, platforms, uh, we can show that in the back office. And I know you're skeptical on numbers, but I think it really does uh, explain that there's a lot more to the behind the scenes and the analytics than it is than the content itself. So I think I think you're looking at impressions, right? No, 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 no. The impressions are at like 3.1 million. For this last 28 days. Now, remember before the election, before or before the uh, convention, or the, uh, not the, the first sitting of the convention, we were almost at 8 million impressions prior to the first sitting of the convention while you were still running, uh, you know, for president. So, uh, you know, the, it's at 3 million now. We expected to drop after, you know, convention stuff sizzles down, but... You're, you're kind of basing a number. Uh, you can kind of get, if you really follow the numbers, you can get to where, you know, the viewer count was about almost 8 million impressions just on YouTube alone. I would have loved to have known what I know now in tracking the numbers back then, and we would have had a way more realistic number back then to go off of than the the smaller social media numbers. But, yeah, the last 48 hours, that's according to YouTube, one point, almost 1.2 million views. Uh, I won't put it on the the, the screen necessarily because of other, uh, you know, information on there that we might not want to release right away. But, uh, you know, I can... Can you show people some part of the YouTube back end? For those who don't know, it's really cool. And if you're in the Producers Club, uh, I would would really love to be able to use that as a place to discuss these things and and track. And, and, uh, you know, I think the conversation is kind of growing in that direction anyway. So... Um, see, is there something that you can put up on screen for? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if I can get it to just, uh, you know, try to get it to where it's just one part of the screen here, where you can actually see it in the last 48 hours. It's their lifetime number. Hang on. I, I, don't, I just, like I said, there's other, other information on there that I might be. Okay, so here we go. I got it. I got it to where we can put it up on the screen fairly. Um, and, you know, so... Uh, you know, you can see it last 48 hours, 1.1 million, I'm sorry. So real-time numbers, last 48 hours, 1.1 million views. So, uh, I mean, that's that's just an accomplishment, I think, all unto itself. So Absolutely. That's definitely worth uh, a consideration. Now, I don't I know you don't want to dive into all the numbers, but... Well, Jim, Jim was calling for the other number. But what's the, the the other big news? Undeniable is that two two thousand new subscribers in the last twenty eight days. So in the last uh, in the in the last twenty eight days, 
Uh, we had uh, 2,000 because uh, we were at uh, we were at 240,000 just a month ago, and then now when the analytics come out in the last uh, in the last 28 days, we've added 2,515 new subscribers just in the last month. So, wow. yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, all this shows that what we're doing is working. We're on a steady growth curve. It's not you know, where we were at our peak, obviously, to get to quarter million subs altogether. But uh, and, and a lot of these numbers, you know, I, I, I want to try to, you know, not be too emotionally invested and, and, and keep distance. But, you know, I, I do see the response. We see the increase in Patreon subscriptions to, uh, you know, a solid stream now. And what I, I, the last thing I want to say about getting into all this, uh, aside from join the Producers Club, $10 a month on Patreon, and, and we can have all the fun you guys want in the Telegram chat with that. And CJ and Jim and myself are available there, uh, you know, I'm basically 24 hours a day. We, we all check in, you know, different times. Uh, but we're, we're watching that. And I'm always there pre-show looking at articles that get posted that, that you guys want to see shared on the air. And sometimes I ask for stories, too. Be like, hey, I need stories, like I do on the show. But, you know, d- developing it with the, with the sort of editorial team that we've got going already, really going strong with the Producers Club. I don't have to skim social media or, uh, you know, web or, or uh, I, mean, I, I like to check the Drudge Report, but now I don't have to do web that in the Producers Club and some people email me and I feel like I have a pretty good mix of the news. The la- so the la- actual last thing here is that we are really excited about getting the studio space and getting to regular funding to up our internet game. And we were discussing this this morning. It might just be by buying a, you know, a dedicated hotspot for each function that, that we have in the studio. You know, broadcast, like, you know, one for in, one for out, one for, you know, you know that, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, one for comments, one for, for me looking at headlines. And, and it might end up being that, you know, having a bunch of hotspots and I, I, you know, having like maybe like two different service providers. If they, if they really get, you know, significant data caps or unlimited data, if we, we ever get to, I mean, if we just had, if you could just get a device with legit 4G unlimited data and you I, you can't quite yet, I, I mean, as far as I, if someone knows that I'm wrong, like, this does not really exist on the market. Like, there are throttled ones, there are pay-as-you-go ones. Uh, they, so the only unlimited would be pay-as-you-go, and those are exorbitant, right, and for what we're doing. Uh, but if you could just pay for, like, this is the most you could ever use, and it's 4G and it's consistent, we could get four of those, and and we'd be covered. Um, and I have, a, just so people know, I, I have explored this. I have figured out how to turn, how to tether my Google Pixel 3. I don't know if I'm supposed to be admitting this on the air. My, but it's, it's an app you get at the store, Google Pixel 3 XL. And on, on the App Store, there's an app, uh, Secure Tether, I think is the name. It might have something else in the, in the title. Um, and it's not great. It, it, it's still, it's not reliable enough to do the show. It, it does allow me, like, I can download bigger files faster when I, when, I'm, when we're not doing the show uh, through my phone. So we have been exploring this, and, and, and to get, you know, I've had a bad experience so far with, with the microwave internet service out here, which is not much better than 4G anyway. And what we were looking into was in the $250, $300 a month realm, something like that. And I, if I could buy a few hotspots and set – and then the studio coming. I'm so excited. So this is the studio is coming, and that's going to be here in six to eight weeks. And, yeah, we were pretty confident in that. Really excited about the design. If someone wants to sponsor the 
Brondo Studios or the uh, John Jacob Jingleheimer Show, whatever you want to call it, Studios. Uh, and it's your inside joke every day. Like today, we are broadcasting from the Freedom Wagon Studios in Gardenia. We really need to come up with a better name for this one. But this is, yeah, we are, as you can see, if you're watching live, again, we are for this week in the Freedom Trailer. And it's, it's kind of, this is like our throwback set week. <laughs> it's a lot of fun yeah, yeah. being here. Jim's got his email or his signature somewhere on the wall. Anyway, so CJ's working on building out a lot of stuff with the website and with the live production. And we're, you know, it's, it, it's a process that takes a lot of patience, but it's a lot of fun. And what we are getting to, I, I want to say, like, what you're going to see, at least two months, you're going to see the show still growing and developing and getting more consistent, stepping up the quality of the production every day, getting the studio set up, having going, going to a desk, having a place to have Jim sitting next to me at a desk properly, like an actual studio space, um, you know, consistent lighting and and uh connection and, and all of that that's you know what we're working out to and what cj is doing with the website and integration and being able to broadcast live through adam versus the man.com uh with with uh every i just say I, I won't get into it but censorship free space no technical difficulties we are working up to that and uh it's going to be a lot of fun when we get there and did you have something else you want to add before we jump into our giant econ block cj I, I, you, you covered it. I just wanted to say we are success again under construction at Adam versus the man.com. But as you can see, we are actually on the website there. Uh, if you do see, like you saw earlier, an error message, just hit refresh because it, it's something with year end. Uh, if we're live streaming, it, it's there, uh, for everyone to see at Adam versus the man.com. So I'm very proud that I was able to get past that hurdle of my, my life. <laughs> All right, and at the hour today in 40 minutes, we've got Stephen DeFiore. I hope that's, that's got to be the right pronunciation, right? DeFiore. Uh, that's a cool name. That's a D, capital D, lowercase i, capital F, I O R E. DeFiore. That's a real, like, I'm not geeking out on the name too much. Anyway, he is running for, now you're, you're going to remember it. That's what it's all about, right? Stephen D. Fiore is running for governor of North Carolina, representing the Libertarian Party in that race. So we're excited to have him join us to tell us all about that. But let's do it. Headlines, jump in here. Oh, wait, check in with comments first. Uh, Anybody, well, any, anything quick, important? Stock Lazy on Periscope is asking, do you take Bitcoin cash? Absolutely. Would somebody donate that to you? Uh, I believe I have a wallet address up at uh, the freedom dot fund, and that's my general donate to support my activism website. I haven't been promoting it for a long time, but that way, when we we had it so that if you if you were at the freedomline dot com and you click on donate, it takes takes you to the freedom dot fund, and then we can do that from other websites. So there's one place where I list all my current crypto addresses. And uh, PayPal, and I, 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 I almost don't want to send people there before I go and like verify stuff. So if it's significant, uh, but uh, let, let me, I'll, I'll double check this right now. I, we, we can do this. I apologize for not being better organized with things like that, but uh, hmm, am I not connected or? 
Let's see. Beat Life Garden Homestead and Permit. No, hey, so the Freedom Dot Fund is down. And I think it has something to do with the Freedom Line being down right now, for which I also apologize. We are having an issue with uh, Cloudflare. Um, and one of the big thing, one of the big uh, chores on my to-do list right now is to get the hosting for the freedomline.com moved over to uh, Namecheap, where we're doing Adam versus the man.com and, and everything else. I love Namecheap. Namecheap is an amazing, I like just, uh, no, not a paid endorsement here, uh, but like, I, you know, and I'm not, I'm not even comparing it to anything else except my past experiences with companies that I won't name, but everything with Namecheap about purchasing a domain and integrating email and hosting and WordPress and all that and their customer service. They have a live chat that has been able to help me through every single problem I've ever had with that. So that that's always that's that's been really cool. Um but yeah I might have to find a way to just like re upload a backup of the freedomline.com through a hosting thing at anyway. I apologize. I shouldn't even be getting that much into it. But thank you for the comment. Absolutely happy to take Bitcoin Cash. Email me. I'll send you the address. Uh, simple as that. You email it to me. I will see it right away on my phone. Cut and paste from my Bitcoin.com uh, Bitcoin wallet. And I'll just I'll send you an address right back. So that's, that's oh, how we'll yeah. do that. And I, I'm, I, I haven't had crypto for a long time. You know, so it's, it's really cool to see that uh, you know, people in our audience are, again, Picking that up, look, it's like I and I've I spent all my five dollar bitcoins on Silk Road on drugs because I I want to support the Bitcoin ecosystem, right? And I, I I did not sufficiently see it as an investment. You said, "Let's go." I just messaged you. Send it over. All right, well, hold on, right <laughs> after the show, then. Yeah, like right after the show, stick around. Promise. Stick around. Uh, yeah, if I had a clip to play, I'd be like, "All right, dude, yeah, we'll take a break." No, but yeah. Uh, so we've got it. Let's, let's do this big yeah, econ block, and then we're going to um, let's see. Then we're going to have our guest Stephen Fiore, and then we'll get to our other pile of headlines. So it's worth taking a look at this question: Is the cure worse than the disease from a, a purely economic perspective? Not just considering that it's already looking like there are going to be more suicides than corona deaths in a lot of places. And the economic fallout, you know, it, yeah, it doesn't measure up to a life, except when it does. Uh, except when the economic fallout is, well, now homelessness, and therefore people going to bed hungry, and therefore suffering health consequences, and therefore dying early. Yeah, because that's what... That's what wealth is. Wealth buys health. Wealth buys security. And when governments are stealing it from us using a virus less deadly than trying to spend a counterfeit $20 bill in Minneapolis is the excuse. You got to go. Yeah. So let's take stock, shall we, today of at least what we're seeing in recent headlines of the economic cost of the cure. So, from USA Today, let's start with this. Almost half of all jobs lost during pandemic may be gone permanently. Mm -mm -mm. It's very traditional lens, you know, not starting to, to really 
measure the pain that I'm talking about. And I'm not one of these employment hawks. I think I think that's a fair term. We gotta have a better term for that somewhere. But you know, people are we don't have the politics. We gotta we can't have unemployment. We gotta fight unemployment. And it's like we're, the goal is a hundred percent employment. Really, shouldn't the goal be a hundred percent retirement? Shouldn't it be wealth and independence and security for everybody and the the ability to start a business and work for yourself? Anyway, that's a rant for another day. But just let's look at the job because. Yes, the, 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 the availability of being able to exchange the value of your labor with the rest of your, with the rest of the world, through whatever economic means, through a job as you see fit, through entrepreneurship, through, through whatever it is where you create value with your time and labor. And the way jobs are looked at today are a, uh, imperfect and very corrupt, but not irrelevant measure of uh, analyzing how capable are we of that? What is your level of economic opportunity? So the COVID-19 outbreak has clearly done a number uh, on the U.S. economy. It says of the U.S. economy. I'm pretty sure that's a word of. The COVID-19 outbreak, USA Today, really? The COVID-19 outbreak has clearly done a number on the U.S. economy, plunging it into a deep recession and sending unemployment levels skyrocketing. In fact, jobless claims reached a record high in April. And while things improved slightly in May and June, new restrictions could send the unemployment rate even higher in the coming months. Unfortunately, rising joblessness could coincide with the end of the $600 weekly unemployment boost that's been keeping millions of Americans afloat these past few months. That $600 boost, which March's CARES Act provided for, expires at the end of July. But because of the way states pay their unemployment benefits on a weekly cycle for most jobless folks, it's already gone. So why not extend the full $600? Lawmakers say to return for workers to return to a job, since with it, some out-of-work Americans make more money on unemployment than they do in an, un- in an employment capacity. But another argument against that boost is that the jobless claims we're seeing right now represent a temporary problem, one that's likely to go away once the COVID-19 outbreak wanes or an effective vaccine is widely available. Now, the thing about you get more money on unemployment than working, it's kind of like one of these underlying problems of the American government that is now coming to a head coming out in a way where we see a sudden surge of job losses and then a dependence on the subsidy, this, this, this $600 uh, you know, benefit. So the idea that it's a temporary problem, obviously that's not the case. And, and when you step back and look at the bigger economic picture, I really want to you know, drive home this core narrative that this is you know, a deliberate shutting down of the economy in order to reboot it with more centralized control. I hate people saying, government's not working, it's failing. No. Are the rich getting richer? Or or, or rather, are the super rich getting richer and the rest of us getting poor? Well, then government is working exactly as intended. And right now it's working better than it ever has. You know, maybe not. That's kind of subjective. Perhaps in war, right, It, it works better. It destroys more value and concentrates more power. Uh, but this is this is the biggest racket of government today. This fake war uh, on a virus that's being hugely overblown. 
Because at least at least government's not. Oh, I don't want to say government's not killing directly. Oh, it's killing a lot of people indirectly. I'd still rather have a small war than a big virus hoax that leads to you know hundreds of thousands of, of unnecessary deaths. And I, I hope that's not. Does that seem reasonable? I mean, if we're talking about you know a significant surge in suicides globally because of economic hardship, we see a, a significant rise in uh, in cancer. Uh, because di- you know, deaths, because people aren't going into the hospital to get diagnosed. Or, and, and this is one of the stories I saw today. That we're we're, we're going to wait till tomorrow to get to when we get into our direct corona sources, as opposed to the, the economic everything around corona. So you can't like you can't even talk about economics now. It, 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 the corona is a cloud over everything. So, how many jobs will be lost permanently? Back to USA Today in April. 78% of those in households experiencing job loss felt that that situation would be temporarily. What is this? Temporary. What are these wordos on USA Today? Really? Are you trying? I guess reading this on screen. Anyway. But now 47% think, I, I, like, is this just lack of professionalism? Do they not edit their shit? But now 47% think that job loss is likely to be permanent. According to the Associated Press, NORC, Center for Public Affairs Research, all told, roughly 10 million workers might need to find a new employer after the pandemic wraps up, and some might need to switch gears and find a new profession altogether. But meanwhile, the pandemic is a long way from being over. It's not over till the fat, bloated government sings. But meanwhile, the pandemic, is, and until the situation improves, those who are out of work will likely need assistance for a long time. In May, Democratic lawmakers proposed extending the $600 weekly boost through January 21. Clearly, they won't be getting their way. Now, so I, I mean, my general estimate of the, the government numbers talking about how bad things are are, are generally going to be uh, underestimated, right? If um, you know, the, the government wants the, the, the general interest of government and the media, the mainstream media, is to uh, underplay the economic cost. So, like, as, as bad as unemployment may be, it's it's going to be spun now to be less bad than it really is. Now, our next story comes from NBC. More than 100 executives warn Congress of catastrophic consequences without relief for small business. The letter spearheaded by Howard Schultz, chairman emeritus of Starbucks, was also signed by Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg and Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. More than 100 current and former top executives at major U.S. companies are calling on Congress to pass long-term relief to ensure that small businesses survive the coronavirus pandemic. In a letter to top congressional leaders of both parties in the House and the Senate that was released Monday, the CEOs and other executives warn of significant consequences to the economy if Congress doesn't immediately act to save small businesses. Now, do you think these people suddenly got magnanimous? Suddenly realized that the giant conglomerates that they're a part of that have eaten up small businesses and kept small businesses from existing in the first place, and so they suddenly woke up? No, 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 We covered this months ago. The first round of Corona relief when it was just, it was just a quarter billion dollars or whatever it was that was going to uh, small business relief. 
the, the bulk of it went to big businesses in small chunks. Maybe not. Some of it went big chunks too. But like, what, what you think they're not doing this for their own bottom line? Oh yeah. Now, one of the things that they're right about, though, is pointing out like they're using the problem of small businesses facing catastrophe, or we're already in it, and uh, as, you know, as the excuse for a false solution. But the excuse is a legit phenomenon. So what they said in the letter, by Labor Day, we foresee, foresee a wave of permanent closures if the right steps are not taken soon. Allowing small businesses to fail will turn temporary job losses into permanent ones. By year end, the domino effect of lost jobs as well as the ser- as lost services and lost products that small businesses provide could be catastrophic. It will be anyway, whether or not Congress acts. Like, the damage is done in a way that I don't want to say can't be undone, right? I mean, because hypothetically, we all, we all want to indulge in the fantasy of the V-shaped recovery, right? And it's hypothetical. Like, there's nothing physically making it impossible. It's a failure of understanding. It's a failure of not having the systems. And if everybody kind of woke up to these basic phenomena and agree on, hey, we're going to do it like this, you know, we could have somewhat of a, a V-shaped recovery. If, if, if all of a sudden, you know, America realized all the parts of government that are wasteful, unnecessary, evil, counterproductive, you know what, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to reduce taxes by, by 90% to do that, and we're basically going to remove all regulations on businesses that, that aren't in line with the natural law. We know how to unleash the economic engine of a country. You know, it's been it's been done before. Like there there are examples of this. You know, the economic history of the world. Like I'm not I'm not pulling this out of my butt here. You know, so there are other ways that we can see wealth and power reorganized, and how we come out of today's status quo of of corporatism. And I mean, I, I. I've heard different terms used to try to describe what the economy is today. Because it's not capitalism, not by a long shot, right? And you can say it's socialist, but the government is socialist, but that doesn't really describe the economy as a whole, right? I mean, and you have to look at it as well. If you're going to describe the economic system that is America today, you have to mention the central bank and, and the fiat currency system that's really at the heart of that. So, I mean, what would you call it? A, a fiat currency-based, mostly socialist, quasi-free market system. Corporate. I, I wouldn't want to say free. It's not free market. It's corporatist, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, it would be a fiat currency socialist slash corporatist. I think, I think that's fair. Like, where do you have, you know, the major economic forces of the market are through corporate entities. So you say it's, it's not a free market. It's, a, it's not a capitalist market. It, it, it's a corporatist. It has a lot of. There's a, yeah, I don't want to pretend like there's no free trade in America. Yeah, obviously a lot of trade happens with free market mechanisms. You, know, you can even say the bulk of it. But when you have a socialized currency or a forced central fiat currency at, at the heart of it, none of those transactions that are done in dollars can be said to be truly free market anyway. When so much of the economy is actually run by government uh, or, or subsidized by government or, or uh, fueled by benefits from government. You can't, re- you can't call that free market. 
you know, and I, I'll spare you the shit sandwich analogy, but, you know, if, if, if your patty's 5% meat, it's still a shit sandwich. If it's 50% meat, you're still not going to want to eat it, right? So I think that's a better way of looking at the system. Our next story is, is another example of, uh, you know, ways that things can change. Fox 5 New York. Pittsburgh launches guaranteed income program with Jack Dorsey money. Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto announced that his city is – am I geeking out on names today? I just want to say Peduto again. Announced that the city is now participating in a program receiving funding from Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, in which eligible residents will receive $500 in monthly guaranteed income. The money used to start the program will come from funds Dorsey gave that is allowing Pittsburgh and 15 other cities to help those who are struggling during the economic crisis brought about by the coronavirus pandemic. A number of people, so Peduto told KDKA, a number of people in the city of Pittsburgh will be chosen to be able to receive a monthly stipend, basically a debit card. He did not specify how many people would qualify, but he did outline the criteria he would look at. Peduto said that he wants to give the monthly payments to those who are currently struggling, and he would be able to improve their lives with it. He is also looking toward money to people of different backgrounds and demographics so that a study can be conducted to analyze how it works. Now, you know, as a libertarian, voluntary charity, this is awesome. And there are a lot of ways, I think, that we come out of the current economic disparity that humanity is experiencing by mechanisms like this, that, that super wealthy people just go, you know what, I don't need 90%, I give away 90% of this and I'm still super rich. I'm still super comfortable. Rest of my life, no problem. I give away 90% of this and create a guaranteed basic income program for my city and just pass out debit cards to hundreds of thousands of people for, you know, for a year or years. And I get more long-term securities. Now I have the love and appreciation. People are willing to support me because they know if I get a big chunk of wealth, I'm going to be generous with it. Right. And, 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 and that's great. Absolutely, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not going to, you know, diminish the positive, the, the good news that this represents at all. But an honest look at this has to go, this is, this is like a corrective measure. Why does Jack Dorsey have so much money in the first place? And I, I love Twitter. I've been on Twitter a lot lately, like really engaged on Twitter. And if you want to follow me there, at Adam Kokish, I greatly appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, it wouldn't be the giant corporation that it is without corporatism, without intellectual property, because you would have competitors. You would have an open source version. And I think we're still going to get there eventually, which is great. But uh, until then, if this happens, it's good. But it's not a long-term solution. Jack Dorsey takes care of Philadelphia after having profited. Because, you know, that money that major corporations profit, like social media sites even, where they profit unfairly because of intellectual property laws, because of corporatism, that money, that value, that it's sucked from us, from everybody else. It doesn't, like, it's not just coming out of the government's magic printing presses. That value comes from the rest of us, the, the diversion of resources to go to the profiteers of corporatism as opposed to those fairly providing value. And the profiteers of corporatism, yes, they provide value too. I'm not like denying, but they are getting more. And so that's, you know, Jack Dorsey doing this. Awesome. You know, there's a lot of things he's done. I'm like, eh, in managing his platform uh, and, and downright against. But hey, 
kudos to him for this. Bigger problem here, though, Jack. We go to Colorado's son. Homeless camps in downtown Denver are out of control as the pandemic drags on. So what's the solution? One nonprofit counted 30 encampments and 644 tents. The tent cities are growing more persistent as Denver has backed off enforcing the camping ban. The dried-up yellow grass in front of the Colorado Capitol is littered with chicken bones, empty water bottles, and food wrappers. More than 100 tents and tarp shelters strung to the trees are the temporary homes for at least 150 people, their coolers and shopping carts parked outside their tent flats. The tent town at Lincoln Park is one of several around downtown Denver that have taken root during the past few months as the coronavirus pandemic steered people out of crowded shelters and the city backed off its enforcement of the camping ban. An estimated 1,350 people are now camped out in Denver. One homeless advocacy group counted 664 tents staked out in a single night this month. Homelessness in Denver as is, is as visible as it's ever been, and the longer the government buildings and businesses stay mostly closed, the sense in the camps is that they are here to stay. So this is a, a big story that really has, uh, I think, yet to be fully properly measured. And there's I, like this is you want to get into this. I, I recommend this story. Check out the link. It's going to be in the notes. There's a lot more to this story. Um, but the bigger picture here is that we're 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 uh, we're seeing the it's not tip of the iceberg. It's it, it's um you know the, the the there's a leak in the dam and it's about to turn into a crack and then a flood. This is going to get a lot worse. And here's how we know. Our next story from the Washington Post via MSN.com. For the unemployed, rising grocery prices stretch budgets even more. We're going to also get into tax preparers, warn unemployment recipients could owe IRS, and more bailout cash. More bailout cash won't stop wave of credit card defaults. Yeah, it's bad. The cost of groceries has been rising at the fastest pace in decades since the coronavirus pandemic seized the economy, leading to Sticker shock for basic staples such as beef and eggs and forcing struggling households to rethink how to put enough food on the table. Long-standing supply chains for everyday grocery items have been upended as the pandemic sickened scores of workers, forced factory closures, and punctured the carefully calibrated networks that b- brought food from farms to store shelves, even while some of the sharpest price hikes have been eased somewhat, the overall effects have been felt most acutely by the nearly 30 million Americans who saw their $600 enhanced unemployment benefit expire last Friday exacerbated concerns that the recession's long tail could worsen food insecurity for years to come. Now, we're very fortunate that people aren't starving. Food banks in America are doing pretty well, as far as I know. Uh, that, you know we're, we're really capable of, of making sure that nobody's starving. But the economic pressure that we're experiencing that is coming down on the food system may threaten our ability to do that. And I don't, I don't think we're, I, I don't think America is ever going to let people starve on that. No. Uh, but we might be eating a lot of government cheese and spam for a while. And there are going to be health consequences to that. It's going it, it, this is going to get ugly. 
uglier, excuse me. The next story, thehill.com, tax preparers warn unemployment recipients could owe IRS. Yeah, did you know that, Jim? Mm -hmm. Jim didn't know that. Tax preparers are concerned that many of the millions of Americans receiving unemployment benefits due to the pandemic are unaware that they might owe money to the IRS next year. Jobless benefits are subject to federal income taxes as well as state income taxes in most parts of the country. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Your government, your God, yes. Bow down and worship. This is a generous God if you lick the boots sloppily enough. I don't know, how, slavishly enough. However they like it. Whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, we, you know, we're coming into this era. I, I've heard this described as the era of free money. And, and if we go to that, oh, what's the incentive to work? I mean, we're already seeing like consumerism or, you know, consumer demand isn't tamped down by unemployment. I mean, not, excuse me, I didn't word that right. But, uh, you know, the sort of general demand of the market, excuse me, you know, people still need food, shelter, housing, cell phones, et cetera, et cetera. And if they go from working to paying for those things from government money, eventually there are going to be a lot of those people working. It's just kind of, and then the money starts buying less. But before we get to that story of the inflation of the monetary supply around all of this, Bloomberg, Quint, more bailout cash won't stop wave of credit card defaults. Despite the coronavirus and millions of jobless claims driving the U.S. economy deeper into recession, the flood of credit card delinquencies that some predicted has yet to materialize. Instead, card debt has actually gone down since the pandemic struck, with many consumers spending less while using bailout money to chip away at balances. Oh, 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 so this is how this is engineered, huh? This is, oh, you know what, hey, let's get some more money. We're going to use the guy. We know. These things don't happen without the permission of the most powerful people in the world. You see, this is, oh, okay, this is how it's engineered. You have to get past, there's this big facade of institutional naivete when the mainstream news talks about government. Like, oh, well, they, they want this good thing to happen. It's just an unintended... No! They, they, when when the American people say, we want this law, and the politicians go, okay, and it backfires, that that's an unintended consequence. When politicians convince the Americans to go along with a policy, and they say it's for X, and then Y happens, and they say that's an unintended consequence. They knew that Y was going to happen. It's not unintended. You know, and, and I think everybody looking at the world and being skeptical appropriately of government to reframe just how they hear that message. But that may not last even if Congress passes a new rescue package with more unemployment benefits. The cumulative effect of the ongoing economic catastrophe may finally trigger that default deluge, a new survey reveals. More than half of consumers with credit card debt said they will need more bailout money to make minimum payments over the next three months, but about the same number said unemployment 
will be more critical to avoiding default. And right now, roughly 30 million Americans are claiming unemployment benefits. So it's like you add that to Social Security, subtract minors, what, what percent of the population is still being productive? It is, it, is, it is scary to think this is the reboot. This is the shutdown and the reboot. So we go to RT.com next. U.S. dollar could be a crash risk amid rising economic and political uncertainty. After suffering its worst monthly fall, in about a decade, the U.S. currency has started August with a bounce. However, analysts predict further weakness in the greenback. We expect the currency to be undermined by an ebbing of state haven flows, a reduction in the U.S. rate advantage, and political uncertainty ahead of the November presidential election. This is from a U.S. from UBS analysts wrote last week. The ICE U.S. dollar index, which measures the dollar against a basket of six major rivals, plunged 4.2% in July, its biggest one-month decline since September 2010. Is it happening? I don't want to call it. I don't, it's happening. It's, no, but it's something's accelerating. When I say it, I mean like the actual, you know, death spiral of the dollar. Is this... Is this a star? Are we still in the preliminary engineer decline that could go on for years to come? This is a serious rumbling in the system. And I, I, you know, I don't want anybody to panic any more than you already are. But if this isn't enough to get you to think about getting some financial security, buying, owning land, living on it, having, you know, something that is off-grid and self-sustaining, at least having a cushion of material value in things other than currencies at all, uh, in gold, silver, uh, land, but also cryptocurrencies or even just other other national currencies that are going to hold more dollar more value in case the dollar crashes. Uh, if you, if you want to, like, you know, tease out your options there, but to, to at least look into this for yourself and decide – what the right way to go is. So our next story, Wall Street Journal, why gold prices are hitting all-time highs. Gold prices are on track to notch new records this week after closing at over 2,000 a troy ounce for the first time ever on Tuesday in New York trading. That marks a fresh milestone in a bull run that began in late 2018 and has gathered momentum during the coronavirus pandemic. The precious metal has soared almost 35% in 2020, outstripping the rally in the NASDAQ Composite Index of high-flying technology stocks. Now, the the one thing I want to point out about this is that it's a bit of a delayed effect, uh, because what we saw actually at the beginning of this was a rush to liquidity as people wanted to get out of assets they were afraid would lose value because of the pandemic shutdowns, and so there, there was a rush to cash away from liabilities. But then from that cash, now it's back to secure assets. So the dollar has to serve as an intermediary, and that kept gold prices, uh, you know, suppressed for a while. Or, and, and now we're seeing the, the longer-term adjustment. Now, this is a phenomenon affecting the rest of the world, of course. So our next story from Bloomberg via Yahoo.com, Turkey's lira hits a record low as interventions fail to stem drop. And I, I hear... I read a headline like this, 
and I'm pissed off. I'm, I'm pissed off right away. <laughs> you know, like, I, and then I laugh at myself right away. But uh, interventions fail to stem drop. I mean, this is kind of like saying more murder, more victims murdered by serial killer as giving him money fails to slow him down. I mean, like, wait, wait, what? No, and this is just, you know, part of our service here at Adam vs. the Man is translating these backwards status headlines. Turkey's lira tumbled to its lowest level against the dollars. Interventions by state banks failed to keep a lid on the currency's depreciation. At the root of the strains are concerns about the level of Turkey's reserves and an aggressive monetary easing cycle that's fueled an outflow of foreign capital with pressure mounting on the currency. Authorities have been leaning on state banks to bolster the lira with dollar sales rather than raising interest rates or curbing the supply of credit. Don't you dare curb the supply of credit. That would ruin the whole racket. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into this. Just to show that there, uh, you can, I think we can look at this as, as possibly, uh, you know, maybe not a canary in a coal mine for the rest of the world, but at least uh, a warning that, you know, and, and, and so we'll be keeping an eye on the lira in Turkey. And, you know, when we do our next economic, big economic analysis, we'll, we'll, we'll look into that and, and, you know, maybe even have a better survey of currencies around the world and see what they're experiencing. Of course, the dollar as the world reserve currency being the, the one big, uh, the elephant in the room is, you know, the one that you need to keep an eye on the most, especially as an American that affects you the most. But the next story from the Wall Street Journal, more farmers declare bankruptcy despite record levels of federal aid. And then you go, that's kind of the same as the last headline, isn't it? Thief fails to slow down despite public encouragement. That, that, that would be a good, that, 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 there's, there's a good description of government, right? More U.S. farmers are filing for bankruptcy as federal payments projected to reach record levels this year fall short of compensating for the coronavirus pandemic. Wrong. The shutdowns and a years long slump in the agricultural economy. Surprise, surprise. Next one. Why is this happening? From nextgov.com. Driven heavily by the Defense Department, contract spending across government will exceed $600 billion in fiscal 2020, even before the COVID 19 pandemic forced the federal government. Oh my God, no. Forced the federal government into emergency spending mode agencies. Do I have to say this? Gave them an excuse to go into emergency spending mode. Uh, agencies, including the Defense Department, were on base to blow past the single-year contract spending record of $598 billion set in fiscal 2019. As of August 5, the federal government has obligated $438 billion in spending with agencies expected to unload almost $200 billion more before the close of the 2020 fiscal year in September. I, 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 you know what? I don't. I don't even want to get into this number any deeper because there's some of the different metrics of this. You can, I mean, we talked about the, you know, the big number from months ago, and it's been exceeded by now. There was nine trillion dollars of liquidity added through, you know, the, the main legislation and quantitative easing, whatever the, the, the you know, Federal Reserve was doing during that time. And that money, and you, it's, it's it's a mind-boggling amount of money, right? And I, and and you know. Libertarians can talk about wealth disparity, too. You should be angry at the unjustly rich because they are rich through fraud, through rackets, through government thievery. 
And that's my winning. And, you know, the numbers almost don't matter. The, the numbers that be, become the, 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 the tools of manipulation, the, the money in the bank accounts. What is the actual manipulation? It's the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Or more accurately, the super rich getting richer and the rest of us getting poorer. We've got a lot of, like, even big businesses, family that weren't in on the racket enough to be part of the club that, that is enriched by this. Did you look at who's being enriched? And what is the actual effect? Who lives like kings? Who lives like paupers? Right? Yeah, you should. Uh, I, 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 I'm tempted to say, let's bring back Eat the Rich from a libertarian perspective, right? No, it's not. I don't know. I'm not. I, I, but for the unjustly rich, let's recognize that they are freaking thieves and they have turned up their game more than ever before in human history, except possibly around some of the major wars that we've experienced. And, and this just if you don't see that that is the point of the coronavirus pandemic, you're blind to reality. All right, that's that's my economics block today. Um, we got two minutes. Is there was there an issue with my connection? Uh, it says LGE and or LTE and, and decent signal. Is it good now? Yeah. Um, maybe CJ come on and tell us if we're still an issue. He just told me backstage that before the interview, he wants to make sure to give him a good one. So uh, your data. Was I mean, it seems. Throttled, he said, like it must be choppy. I got choppy for a while. It's probably interference because in the morning we don't get. In the past, we haven't gone throttled. Oh, okay. He says you're good now, actually. So, good. All right. Well, I hope you covered up my choppy video with good graphics from those stories. And uh, we got clear audio the whole time, at least. So, before we go to our guest, Stephen DiFiore, uh, do we have any any comments? Jim? Did you, were you getting some on screen? I didn't see during that. During that vlog. Um, I having my throttling issues of my own. Oh, you can't be putting stuff on screen. Okay, but tell us then. Read us. Read us live on the air for the benefit of the audio only audience as well. Uh, Well, healthy disrespect for authority. Great uh, a regular watcher and a commenter. I just want to congratulate him. He's closing next week on property. All right. So is this? Are are we taking some credit for this? That. And we have inspired someone, to... and, and and at least at least some, at least a tiny bit of credit for for encouraging that. That's wonderful. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for. And if not, thank you for sharing the good news anyway. And I like uh, X uh, X Spice. I guess he's on um, Periscope. He gave a link here at Twitter. He has a new hashtag going on. Hashtag No Libertarian Under One K. Let's connect libertarians worldwide. Oh yeah! Oh, I think I, I think I saw that on Twitter. I didn't I didn't mm-hmm. look into it. Um, I thought it was saying um, we don't tr- you're not a real libertarian if you don't have a thousand followers. Um, I think you're saying but, yeah. the hashtag. You go there. Yeah, and everybody subscribe to everybody so that there's no libertarians. That so what's the, what's the hashtag? Every hashtag libertarian. No libertarian under one k. Okay, no libertarian under one k. I'm gonna write this down in my notes. Um, if we had someone handling social media for us right now, so hashtag no libertarian under, under the number one in a capital K, right? Um, yeah, that's that's an awesome idea of, of strengthening the libertarian community conversation on on Twitter. And uh, yeah, basically, I've seen libertarian follow trains. I haven't really been compelled by a vision or anything to get involved with anyone in particular, but that sounds really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are people, there are candidates running for office under one gay, and I feel sorry for them. Yeah. Like, if, if you're a libertarian candidate, if you if you got the initiative and guts to put your name on a ballot, 
with an L next to it and file the paperwork. Um, the libertarian community should give yeah, you a thousand yeah. followers. Like right. we should, we should, yeah, if should only, like, yeah, we should listen. We should accept your campaign stuff and what your message is in our Twitter feeds in order to, you know, not only give you the capability of connecting to us, the community, but to give you that credibility that comes with 1000, you know, maybe getting a blue check mark and, and all that stuff to help you out on Twitter. That sounds cool. I'm in. Thank you for the tip. Yeah. yeah. I, I said, who, who said that? Uh, it's on Periscope. It's E-X-P-I-C-E. Is that X-Pice? X-X-Pice. How would you pronounce that? I'm not sure. Watch on Periscope, though. Awesome. A couple of comments awesome. on Periscope. Yeah, yeah very yeah. cool. So, um, yeah, everybody who's watching right now, Let's do this. If you want to tag me in it, I would appreciate it. Add Adam Kokish on yeah, Twitter and something. I'm doing it, but I'm using my phone, so I can't. Hashtag no libertarian under 1K. Start me on some follow trains. I'll I'll start retweeting that consistently as long as that looks like, uh, as long as it sounds like fun. I mean, that could be something that we just sort of, that could be our thing as a community, as a movement to say, yeah, if you're, uh, if you if you self-identify as a libertarian on Twitter, uh, we we want to make sure you have at least a thousand followers, and that's part of our Twitter culture is supporting each other that way. I, I don't know. I'm not super optimistic that this is going to be the thing that takes the libertarian. Oh, that's all we needed was yeah. But this could be fun as long as it's productive, as long yeah, as it's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll put some time into that. Cool. So, any other burning comments before we get to our uh, guests? I don't no, want to keep them waiting any longer. Keep them waiting. All right. So we have Stephen De Fiore with us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Steve D. I'm going to do this right. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, we're doing interviews. I want to get make sure I get his webpage uh, up here. Steve, uh, can can you pull up? Uh, we have Stephen for NorthCarolina.com. CJ, can we get that on screen here to introduce him? Because I can't find it. Or I can't. Something's up with my. Oh, there it is. All right, we got it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Stephen D. Fiore. He is running for governor of North Carolina as a libertarian. Excited to have him on today to tell us about this race and get plugged in to the broader movement. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Can you uh, hear me okay? Lima Charlie, looking good. Almost as good as on your website. You've got a beautiful politician, gentle smile, pose. Mm-hmm. And uh, look, look, with the suit and tie, looking very gubernatorial. You are looking very gubernatorial in in, in this, uh, and, and I, I like it. It's it's good. I'm being a little, you know, facetious, making fun of you in this. Oh, no, you know, that's fun. As a politician, you have yeah. to have a good sense of humor about yourself. I, uh, yeah. I'm one of those guys. I just happen to like wearing suits and ties. It's a character <laughs> flaw. Uh, but uh, But you know what? People like it, and that's cool. You know, it's all about personal choice. How you like to dress is is perfectly fine with me. Well said. Very libertarian of you. So, Stephen, first, what should people know about you and your personal background that's relevant to this race? Well, in North Carolina, um, like many North Carolinians, I wasn't born and raised in North Carolina. I'm originally from New York State. Don't hold that against me. Uh, I grew up in the Adirondack Mountains, um, and I left New York State uh, because there wasn't as much opportunity up there uh, as I wanted. Didn't know it at the it, time. Because you listen to that country song, Songs About Me. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, but I moved to North Carolina in 2004, 
Um, and I lived on the Crystal Coast for about a year, and uh, I enjoyed my time there. And um, then in 2005, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I went to UNCC uh, and got a, a, a public education in political science and Russian studies. Very useful. And uh, so I've been active in the Libertarian Party really since uh, the Gary Johnson campaign in uh, 2016. Um, there was a gubernatorial candidate in 2008, uh, Mike Munger, and he he made a lot of sense. And it was my real first introduction to libertarianism. And I was like, wow, this, this guy's making a lot more sense than the other two folks. I really want to know more about this philosophy. And that's when you know I discovered the Ron Paul revolution and the liberty movement. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Uh, and I began my, uh, my metamorphosis from mm. a, uh, a statist caterpillar into a beautiful libertarian <laughs> butterfly. Uh, and I've been, uh, it's, I've been part of the party ever since. And uh, it's fun. It's my hobby. It's my passion. Uh, North, in my humble opinion, which is worth exactly what you're paying for it, uh, the Libertarian Party of North Carolina is probably the best <laughs> political party across the country. And uh, I, that's, I, that's uh, I've, I've, I've spoken in North Carolina uh, Libertarian Party events. You definitely have uh, a beautiful, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a, a community uh, behind you in mm-hmm. running for office as a Libertarian in North Carolina. So what community about is the- very important. And I, I remember when you came to our convention, actually. Uh, it was really fun to see you. I had seen you uh, in Adam versus the Man earlier. I was kind of a fan. Uh, got my... My book. Yes, yes. Oh, like, beautiful. So, so I, I'm trying to keep it on the level, but I'm fanboying a little bit on this. <laughs> well, now I get to be your fan. So, you know, what about this race compelled you to jump in? You know, why governor? You know, what what of your mm-hmm. background qualifies you, and and what appeals you to, or what about this this race appealed to you? Yeah, so the the governor's race in North Carolina is one of our ballot access races. So in order for the Libertarian Party of North Carolina to be a legitimate, legally recognized political party in our state, we need 2% of the vote in either the presidential race or uh, the gubernatorial race. And so the Libertarian Party of North Carolina came to me and they said, Steve, you're a good public speaker. You're a good writer. You, you know, you clean up nice. You're that weird guy that likes to wear a suit. Um, we want you to be our standard bearer. Um, and it's really quite an honor. Um, and so that is, that is why I'm doing this. But more importantly, and I couldn't have known this back in January, but the, the feckless nature of our state government particularly in response to the COVID crisis, has upended the lives of hundreds of thousands of North Carolinians. And even even though one political party or the other has the power to actually benefit the lives of North Carolinians, they're choosing not to. And it's, it's for cynical partisan games. And it, it's, it's not something that I think we as a, a state deserve. The people of North Carolina deserve better. They need another option. They need more choices. They need a different voice. There is a better way to go about this. There's a better way to promote human flourishing and prosperity in our state. And it, it starts 
it, in a state like North Carolina, it, it kind of has to flow from the top down, at least for the time being. And that is one of my motivations. The, the people of our state deserve to hear something more than what the duopoly proposes. They deserve to hear a message of liberty and human flourishing. If we are a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, then I believe it is the people's right and duty and obligation to put their best foot forward and make our leaders listen to us and act on our behalf and not on their own behalf. Mm, That's a beautiful segue to what I want to get into next in terms of your message to the people of North Carolina. Looking at your website, Issues Facing North Carolina, uh, you know, it, it seems very moderate. I mean, is that you're talking about uh, education, health care, housing and zoning? And I got to say, the disappointment is a libertarian. Reform North Carolina, ABC, the alcoholic beverage control system. Are you, are you trying to tell me the people of North Carolina aren't ready to abolish ABC there? I don't, I don't know how bad it is in North Carolina. Um, well, I will, I will say this. Uh, abolish is a kind of reform, and it is the ideal kind of reform, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. uh, I do yes. prefer privatization. Uh, there is a lot of crony interest in the ABC, though, so uh, baby steps. So is it, is um, it, is I will, it, I will take the whole hog it, if is necessary. It, is it as bad as I'm remembering that North Carolina has, like, it's all government-run liquor mm-hmm. stores? Like, that's it's a complete... It's a government cartel. on liquor. And if you don't live in a state that has this, it's like, what? Really? Like, you're like, because everywhere else you go, oh, yeah, there's liquor stores. And they have, you know, giant selections of wine and everything you want mm-hmm. and competitive prices and service and, you know, different levels of stores you can go to with, you know, quality and, and customer service and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, New Hampshire does this. And I first experienced this in New Hampshire and all government-run liquor stores in New Hampshire. And you're like, why do you let this happen? How much do you not value your freedom? And and, and I would hope that, that, you know, for you that this is a, uh, at least, I know it's not the most pressing topic, but kind of a popular one, right? Especially COVID, everybody needs more alcohol to cope right now. Well, the situation is probably more pressing and even worse than you may think. Since COVID, the ABC, which is a government-run cartel, has been weaponized against small business owners. So bars and restaurants and clubs are being forced to shut down. And the government has taken it upon itself to describe some industries and some people's professions as non-essential. But then they don't take that extra step on telling us which of our bills are then non-essential, which of our taxes are then non-essential. And so you will have uh, restaurants that are being forced to operate under, you know, restrictions. They can't have so many people in. They're no longer allowed to sell alcohol uh, past 10 o'clock because, as the governor himself has said, restaurants cannot sell alcohol after 10 o'clock because they then become bars, and we know bars are uh, hotbeds of transmission for COVID which is very interesting. I didn't realize a, um, a restaurant magically became a bar, which then magically increased the rate of infection risk for, uh, for COVID. Now, I understand why some people are afraid of, you know, getting sick. Uh, you know, it's the, the death rate in North Carolina has been flattened, 
the infection rate seems to happen flattened, uh, yet it's not going down. So the shutdown is being extended indefinitely. Uh, and every time the new deadline comes up, it gets extended. But let yeah, me go back to the ABC one more time. And then uh, the thing is how the ABC is weaponized, it'll go to a bar or a club that says, man, we need to pay the rent. We need to put food on the table. We need to earn a living. And there are people who are in the low risk category and need to make their own decisions, you know, quality of life. And, you know, they want to do what they want to do. So they, they go into it both eyes open. So we want to open up. The ABC says, no, what we're going to do is we're going to take away your liquor license because, you know, that's a punishment we can do for you. Well, if you're a bar or a club, that's all she wrote, man. What are you going to do, have a club and sell only Coke? Yeah, I, I, this is, I see a part of the bigger, we're going to shut down the economy under COVID, reboot it under new ownership strategy. That, that's it's the hollowing out of the middle class and working class in this state and across yep. the country. The, uh, the, the cronies in Washington pass a trillion-dollar spending bill, and they give it to the top 500 companies. It's the biggest wealth redistribution we've ever seen, socialism on steroids. Uh, It's not to the benefit of the working man and woman or the working family, and both Democrats and Republicans are part and parcel of the same poisonous tree. It's it's a terrible, terrible situation we find ourselves in. The, The social contract, if you subscribe to that or not, has been completely disregarded by the people in power, and it is their obligation to uphold their end of it. We pay our taxes. We follow the laws. We do the things we need to do the right way, whether you're Republican, Democrat, right, left, libertarian, whatever, but the people in power have no obligation on their own. They, they see no duty of care to the people that, you know, with a word, they can upend the lives and livelihoods of millions. It's, well, it's completely unjust and wrong. That, yeah, we have a system where the people who are entrusted with making the most important decisions face no consequences for being wrong. So speaking of which, before I want to get to your main issues here mm-hmm. and, you know, what the offer you're making to the people of North Carolina is. But first, you, know, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of your analyses or, uh, of the numbers in North Carolina, how much do you trust the numbers in North Carolina for COVID cases and fatalities? Well, with the number of cases, um, I mean, it is what it is. No, the What is a case isn't well-defined, so we don't know if a case is simply I was work made me take a test, I came up positive, but I feel great. Or, oh, I just got the sniffles, or I went to the hospital with uh, upper respiratory tract infection. They didn't have any tests available, and I was like, ah, we'll just do it COVID so we get a little bit of an extra, you know, thing. Um, and then you have the death cases, and, you know, people die, and, you know, a death certificate has to be filled out. Um, we don't have much transparency as far as, oh, this person had COVID, but, you know, they had massive um, thoracic trauma due to a car crash. So we'll mark them as a COVID death. I don't know if that's happening in North Carolina. I read a report that that happened at least once or twice in New York. Um, so I I tend to think that in North Carolina, the numbers are probably probably a bit more transparent just because of the people involved. It's uh, it's more bottom up in the healthcare system. Uh, the the private hospitals in North Carolina kind of have uh, they have a motivation to be transparent about their their reporting. 
Uh, it's harder to lie to people in North Carolina than New York City. It it probably is. Now I could be wrong, but I I want to be as charitable as possible, right? I, it's easy to straw man your opponents. I'd rather steel man them and then see if I can argue against that point. Now yeah. the numbers are real. I mean, we can argue, we can quibble about it, but uh, the the curve as stated has flattened. Right. The hospitals aren't being overrun. You know, people are passing away, and that's a tragedy for them and their families. Um, but there are real obstacles that are, have been put in place to offering greater care to people who are sick. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, we have certificate of need laws in North Carolina. Certificate of need laws are basically if you're a private doctor and you want to offer some kind of care that maybe the local hospital also offers. But, you know, you want to do the thing where you want to actually post your prices at a rate that people can afford because you figured out how to do that. You then have to ask the hospital and the hospital board for permission to provide that care. Um, actually, the Institute of Justice took on a case for a uh, gastroenterologist in one of the cities in North Carolina in Greensboro, Dr. Singh. He wanted to buy an MRI machine to provide $500 MRIs to people who needed them. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an MRI before, but I have to get at least one, one a year, uh, and they're expensive. You know, at least two thousand grand with insurance, maybe seven thousand grand. Somehow the hospitals get paid twenty, and you can only get it at a certain at certain places. Well, five hundred dollars is a lot more affordable than a few grand. You know, that's about the price of a significant car repair, which most people can save up money for. And you know, usually you don't need more. Oh, it looks like we lost Stephen on his connection. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry about that. No uh, problem. Right so, back to where you were is great. I know, right? But, you know, that $500 is an affordable price. So he was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to go buy an MRI machine. You know, he's a was an immigrant doctor from India. He's like, you know what? This is America. If I need something to provide my customers a service that they want, I can just buy the piece of equipment, right? Wrong. He had okay. to go to the cartel, ask for their permission, and let me just – I'll posit this question to your audience. If you're going to go to your hospital and say, hey, listen, I know you're selling these things for twenty grand a pop, but I want to sell them for $500 a pop. Can I have permission to, com- uh, to compete in your territorial uh, monopoly area? What do you think they're going to say? <clears throat> well, they're going to say you're dangerous and it's unsafe to have unregulated people outside of a hospital without permission doing it. And I get it. Oh, my God. It's insane. Mm-hmm. So I want, I want just to the bigger picture, I think the ultimate steel man against all of this corona propaganda is that even in the worst case possible scenario that you are credibly presenting, none of it justifies violating individual rights. No. Ever, under any circumstance. Right? Rights are non-negotiable. Yeah. We can and take, as, as individuals and as communities, we can take reasonable measures to ensure our own safety, the safety of our neighbors, and communities can come to agreement on that. You know, it's a lot easier to hold a county commissioner accountable or a mayor accountable or, you know, a local city official, a town commissioner accountable than it is a governor, a senator, a president. Devolution down to the local level gets better results because not every community is the same. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's the biggest metropolitan area in North Carolina. Our issues are different than Carteret County. 
which is a county in the Outer Banks, which is quite rural and one of the poorest commun- uh, one of the poorest counties in North Carolina. Not every county and not every community within a county is the same, and so people might choose different routes to promote their own economic well-being and their own and the safety of their of the people who live there. And they are, in my opinion, best situated to make that decision. Right now we have a top-down, one-size-fits-all approach. We have people in government who want to be your mother and father and tell you what to do. To use a Larry Sharp line, I don't want to be your mother. I don't want to be your father. I want to be your brother or your uncle. I'm not going to live with you, but I'll drive you to the airport if you need it. I'm there to help you, but, you know, you can make your own decisions for yourself. All right. So, Stephen, your three big issues other than ABC reform on your website are education, healthcare, and then housing and zoning. And for each, I would like you to at least quickly give us why this is important for your campaign to address and what is your message to North Carolina. So if you would please education first. Yeah, so education is very important. In the North Carolina state constitution, the state government actually has a mandated obligation to provide education opportunities to the people of North Carolina. It's right there in our state constitution. So the state government has to do something by its own you know, constitution to promote education. Now, currently, we have a kind of mixed structure. We have really good homeschooling laws. We have uh, charter schools and the Opportunity Scholarship. And then we have school boards uh, that uh, oversee public schools in North Carolina. Now, the public schools in many areas are maybe not the best. And a lot of folks, at least where I live, uh, they're advocating all kinds of different opportunities to improve the kind of educational access that they want, whether it's Montessori, charter, private, parochial, um, school of choice. So, for example, you live in a, in a zip code and your school ain't so good, but the zip code next over, the school district next over, that's a better school, so you want to send your kid there. Why shouldn't you have that option? And I'm a big believer in the more options. Uh, we lost him again for a second. He said ahead of the interview that his camera does that randomly. Oh, it's the just, camera issue. Okay, yeah. well, we'll get him back we'll up as soon as... Yeah, and then, uh, then we can always cut these out for post-production. While we're all live, though, I'll just dance for you with my eyebrows. Uh, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. The uh, I didn't think the mic would cut out that time. It was very strange. No worries. Please, right back to where you were. Yeah, yeah. So the, the more options, the better, in my opinion. And I, right now you have the, the, the um, North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. They kind of tell everyone what they have to do. Uh, I'm of the opinion that local school boards, which are elected officials, are best situated to make those decisions for the different counties. Gaston County is different from Mecklenburg County, which is different from Dare County, which is different from Cherokee County, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, the state can offer uh, more options, uh, increase the cap on charter schools, which people like, uh, increase the uh, the cap on uh, opportunity scholarships, which people like, make sure that the tax money that you pay in your property taxes for schools follows the child and isn't by default slated to the institution itself. If we have a state obligation to educate the, the people of our state, our, you know, our children, then 
it should stand to reason that that money that the state takes from us, uh, which is not ideal, but it is what it is, goes to the child themselves, not the institution that would purport to uh, teach our child things that are maybe less useful than we want. And of course, there's other opportunities for vocational education. You know, uh, again, like I live in a big metropolitan area that before COVID was in the midst of a labor shortage, a labor shortage of skilled labor because of a housing boom that's been going on uh, for a couple years. We need more electricians. We need more plumbers. We need more tradesmen and carpenters. And so more opportunities for people to get that kind of education so that they can get into gainful employment. You know, there's a lot of different ways we can do that, and uh, I firmly believe that local communities are best situated, best suited to make those choices. And the individuals and families should be empowered to make the choices for themselves and their children. All right. Healthcare. Yeah. So, again, I touched on CON laws, and that's the real big one. CON laws prevent good quality health care options from being provided at a price that people can afford in North Carolina. You know, we have the Institute of Justice uh, suing the state of North Carolina for its uh, CON laws, the Certificate of Need laws. It goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, takes years and years to do it, the Supreme Court of North Carolina, I mean. Uh, These are lawyers employed by the state with your taxpayer money to protect the health care cartel so that your health care costs stay high, that innovation in the healthcare space is prevented. And it's not like these doctors are just people off the street. It's This is not Dr. Nick from The Simpsons. These are people <laughs> that had to go to school, are, are accredited. They are good physicians, and we need more opportunity to have that kind of creative solution so that people don't have to, you know, spend an arm and a leg to get any kind of useful health care, you know? Housing and zoning. Not yes. to hear from a gubernatorial candidate. Why is this an no. issue? In so it, 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 is, it is kind of a, a, an issue. So right now, uh, North Carolina, if, if we're going to get into some of the political weeds, you know, states usually are either home rule or Dillon rule states, basically meaning if it's home rule, local communities have greater say about what choices and changes and ordinances they can pass. And in the Dillon rule state, basically what the state government says goes, and that goes throughout everything. So North Carolina operates in such a way where when it's convenient for the people in power, it's home rule, sort of. When it's convenient for the people in power, it's what Raleigh says. Raleigh's the the state capital. And in that way, local communities always have to look over their shoulder If, for example, Charlotte says, hey, we have an idea for um, changing the zoning ordinances to make it easier to build housing in places where people need it because we have a housing shortage here, uh, they have to make sure that whatever they craft doesn't annoy or make angry the people in power in Raleigh, in Wake County, same thing. And so you, you have local people who maybe say, hey, here's a situation in our local community. We can do this, make it easier to do that, empower people to uh, provide these kinds of housing or uh, business zoning that they want uh, without, without worry because the right now the state government, if the state government decides it doesn't like what you're doing, they can come in and they can just say, nope, you're not allowed to do that anymore. 
and then they, they tack on whatever else they want. Uh, housing and zoning is important because local communities need to be empowered to be able to choose how they want to do it. You know, there are some cities in this country that don't have zoning laws at all. I think Dallas is one of them, right? And housing costs are Houston. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, are lower than most of the other cities in the country. Why can't we have that in some of the cities and towns in North Carolina? Well, I'll tell you why we can't have that, because the state government won't allow it. Well, yep. again, I'm about devolving power down to the local level as much as possible, because then you get better solutions for the people who want them. All right, Stephen, what's the opposition like in this race? So the opposition is the current governor, Roy Cooper. Um, he's uh, an old school business Democrat and you know, never let a crisis go to waste. So the – the war on small businesses is essentially being, you know, spearheaded by Roy Cooper as he's using his uh, executive orders to shut down businesses uh, across the state. Now, there's an argument to say that that's unconstitutional, that the governor of North Carolina doesn't have that power. So you would think that the Republicans, for example, the lieutenant governor is a Republican and the legislature is majority Republican. You would think the Republicans would say, hey, we have the power to pass legislation in a state, by the way, where the legislature is the most powerful branch of government, not the executive. But for some strange reason. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that Republicans are just as criminal as Democrats and they don't care about the constitution of the country or the states within it when it comes to restraining government power? I'm shocked. Is this? Can't be. It's like we're living in, you know, the mirror world of Alice in Wonderland. Every, everything's upside down, right? I mean, how how could that be the case? And well, the question the question is, why isn't, for example, the current lieutenant governor who's running to be governor has the power to really force the state to not keep people in destitution? Why why wouldn't he use that power? to give people the opportunity to earn a living. Well, maybe he wants to use that power in the future. I don't know. Shocking, right? Well, hey, uh, you, we're going to have to send out an invite for your uh, the, the governor and lieutenant governor of North Carolina to come on the show and uh, subject themselves to the same friendly scrutiny. Absolutely. And uh, see how they measure up to you policy-wise. Uh I'm not optimistic, but we'll make sure that uh, Marcus at least gets him an email. And if, you, if there's anything he can do to encourage them to, to come on Adam versus the man, I'd, lo- I'd love to. I'd love to see the difference here. See if they're see see if they're if they're willing to come on. Yeah, uh, Steve, there's also I believe a Constitution Party candidate too. I'm not oh, as yeah, familiar yeah. with them, so you might be able to get them as well. Possible. All right, more, certainly more likely. Stephen, it's been a lot of fun talking. I really appreciate what Absolutely. you're doing in North Carolina. Uh, any last thoughts? Of course, your website, stephen4northcarolina.com. Everybody, at least, please go check that out. Give him a follow, a like, a subscribe. You know, give, I think he's worthy of at least that support. If you can donate, if you want to see his voice elevated in this race in, in North Carolina, please throw him some money. Uh, I think this one looks like a, a very worthwhile investment for the libertarian movement, Stephen. You look like uh, you're doing great work. you got a great message and, and a great opportunity with this campaign. Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity. 
if you can throw any kind of money, any of your viewers, uh, $5, the price of a cup of coffee, uh, this is an important race for the Libertarian Party of North Carolina. We do require ballot access, at least at the local level. Our party is doing great work in promoting good, useful, and beneficial policies that are significantly improving the lives of people in our local communities. And we need in it, we need our party status in order to be able to continue to do that and to help the people of our state and to introduce a better kind of politics in the state of North Carolina. So please go to stephenfornorthcarolina.com. Check me out on social media at Steve4, that's the number four, gov. Um, like, share, subscribe, comment. Uh, this is a grassroots campaign. You know, it's uh, we're going up against the big two. It's a heavy lift, but 2020 is a strange year, and I think we have a real big opportunity to make a significant and beneficial difference in the people, not just of North Carolina, but across the country. We need we need more hope. Absolutely, well said, Stephen. Thank you for being a part of that positive force for change with the Libertarian Party. We wish you the best of luck in your campaign. Thank you All so right, much. That was a lot of fun. That was man, Steven's Steven's great. I, I want like just you know, regardless of this race, a guy who can represent the message that well. You know, I want to see him doing interviews. I want I, someone here should volunteer if he doesn't have if he doesn't have a you know an organized campaign team and a press secretary to volunteer and see him. Just get him more interviews. How much how, how much would you love to see that message and that voice getting out more on local mainstream media, print, TV, everything? in North Carolina. I think he's a good representation of our movement and our party that way. Any any comments uh, you want to bring in here? Uh, yeah, real quick. D. Vincent W. They were hey, my friend from D.C. All right. Uh, he was mentioning how, and I know this to be true, the look, well, I don't know about specifically, he says your local HVAC companies do not have parts to repair AC in homes and businesses. Those AC parts manufacturers and factories are closed in Mexico, Thailand, and China. So, like, I mentioned this. I thought this was pertinent because I know it's real because another aspect of it is, like, places like... Well, air conditioning is shut yeah. down production in other countries that import to the U.S. Why? Because of COVID? Because of COVID. I was under the impression that governments around the world weren't really able to shut down manufacturing very effectively. Is that not true well, I in know, these I know, industries I know. in those uh, countries? A few different places I've been to over the last two weeks have been starting to say, "Oh, we no longer carry this product." Well, we have so we had we had that problem, you know, when when, when Sam and I are the generator on the bus side, and that's normally how we would run the AC on the bus. And we're like, you know, what? it's not that bad. We can get, you know, it's, it's not that like. We're halfway through here. There's like a hot two months of the summer, and it's starting to get more rain. I think we had one day where it peaked at 100 degrees, and it's already – like today was cold. It was cold this morning. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was like almost oh, – I've got to get my sweatpants to sit in the studio here. Um, but, yeah, they, they, there were swamp cooler. We're talking to swamp cooler. You know, I don't know if it's the same thing. Um, but, yeah, everybody's like, well, it's the peak of the season. We're out. Is there? I mean, it sounds like there's a bigger problem behind this. Not surprising, but yeah, you know, let's keep everybody hot and irritated too. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wonder. I wonder, and I, I don't want to be too uh, too much of a, a paranoid conspiracy theorist because you should be a conspiracy theorist. 
You, know, you should be looking at the theories behind why are they doing this shit that doesn't make sense that's screwing a lot of people over. Oh, they're working together to screw us over so they profit. Yeah, no shit. Like, yeah, you have you you should be, but it's not a paranoid conspiracy theorist. I, I prefer a conspiracy realist, but even to be a conspiracy realist, you have to engage in a certain amount of conjecture and theory and, and you know, look at what's being hidden, right? But to be paranoid, like, it, it's a little bit on the paranoid, paranoid side. Paranoid side to say, they're keeping us from getting air conditioning, and they can calculate how many millions of Americans are going to have air conditioning this summer, and how much more crime is going to be committed as a result. And it get, and they can anticipate and make, you know, have the legislation ready in D.C. And here we go. And you know, that kind of, it's like a, I don't think the racket is that well organized, but it might be. <laughs> but they probably just know a few key spots that they had to shut down to disrupt the whole chain. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's probably yeah to say that it's a. a, a desire to make us hotter this summer that's unlikely it's yeah it, it's more the general shut down the economy so we can reboot right. it under new ownership yeah all and stuff we're lacking yeah and it's affecting the supply chain for air conditioning in the u.s now and food getting there well yeah i mean it's a, we saw the effects from the beginning i'm surprised we haven't heard more stories lately about giant piles of produce rotting on the side of the road in the United States. Yeah. Maybe they fixed that. Maybe that part of the supply chain isn't just we really found a new we way to, to adjust or keep it going. But yeah, let's let's try to if anybody has any stories, producer club especially you want us to get to I'd be I'd be interested in examining uh that again a little more thoroughly. You got a couple more headlines? Yeah, let's get to our, the rest of our grab bag. Um I mean it's ooh, a couple more. Uh one, two, three, four, five, six Seven, eight, nine. I'd like to get to in the next twenty-one minutes. Let's see if we can pull this off. Plus the good news. When we covered the Beirut explosion, I predicted that because this was happening in the age of the internet, you were going to see an angry response pretty quickly. And that's why the mainstream media is going to bury the story as much as possible, because it is a story, as it turns out, of government negligence. And to say I told you so one more time, being vindicated less than 24 hours later, we see this story from Thomson Reuters, news.trust.org. Revolution! Angry crowds in Beirut urge Macron to help bring change. So this is uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, toured Beirut's shattered streets on Thursday, two days after a giant explosion with crowds demanding the end to a regime of politicians they blame for corruption and dragging Lebanon into disaster. Uh, as he told one group, shaking their hands on roads strewn with rubble and flanked by shops with windows blown out after Tuesday's blast that killed 145 and injured 5,000, I see the emotion on your face, the sadness, the pain. This is why I'm here. So he also said, well, what is needed here also is political change. This explosion should be the start of a new era. Now, this is really exciting. I don't think it's a story you're going to see a lot in the American mainstream media. And I'm going to be following this and keeping up with this because I think it's actually a very important one or the world to be aware of right now. But this is part of how human society works. And as a libertarian, it's kind of like, we kind of got to check ourselves and say, you know, some, some people need catalysts. You know, this is this is part of like human nature. You know, a lot of us develop bad habits over time. 
And, you know, only, you know, it's never been a good habit, but then all of a sudden the consequence gets too bad and, you know, you've been sweeping it under the rug for too long and then someone notices you doing something and goes, hey. And you go, ah, oh, shit. Yep, need to break this one. Need, yeah, and that's the wake-up call. Right, and the Beirut explosion being caused by government theft and negligence. This was, they stole people's ammonium nitrate that they were trying to import, as far as I know, as fertilizer, and then stored it improperly for six years and let it explode. Now, it could have been terrorism still, but there's no way around the core truth of the story that even if it was caused by a terrorist or deliberately as opposed to accidentally, that the government made that possible through theft and negligence. And in Lebanon, they are taking this as that kind of awakening. And I hope that this is something the world sees as a beautiful example. So while Lebanon is going through this tragedy right now, why is French President Emmanuel Macron touring Lebanon? He sees this as an opportunity to open up a special economic relationship between France and Lebanon if he's seen as responsible or France is seen as responsible for uh, the political reforms there, for encouraging them. And France becomes a unique friend of Lebanon. And that would be great. I, I, like in and of itself, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. You know, of course, I have lots of problems with the background and the statism behind that and why and, and, and how that happened. But I think this is a huge sign of progress for first world to third world interventionism. If it's happening, going like, hey, we really want to correct your government to bring it more in line with ours so that it's less corrupt and dangerous and violent. I mean, would you rather live in France or Lebanon? You know, I mean, even as a libertarian, you know, for quality of life, right? You know, if you're going to have a big government, better that it not be corrupt and violent and have all the instability that goes along with the corruption of the government in Lebanon. And don't worry, I'm not forgetting the role of Israel and all this and corrupting the entire process. But this is a beautiful sign that the incentives for the rackets of government have shifted. And with the awareness, and we were able to really determine right away what happened with the explosion. There wasn't much time for propaganda to spoil the narrative. And Macron is reacting to that. Uh, I'm not trying to give him, you know, credit as a human being for being, you know, so awesome, this, this just, upright, moral, unique specimen among politicians. No, of course not. But the fact that he is responding in this way that is beautiful, just, righteous, and positive is just such a, a positive indication of how much the incentives that a politician like that has to respond to have, are leading to much better behavior because in the past it might have been, oh, you have a corrupt government? Regime change! Violence, war, widespread death and destruction. And now what he's calling for is political change. And uh, he's, this, is, this is pretty bold. Uh, one man told Macron, we hope this aid will go to the Lebanese people, not the corrupt leaders. I mean, this is, this, this is like a, you know, a really exciting moment in human history because even the concept of foreign aid is being called out as, as libertarians have long referred to it as stealing from poor people in rich countries to give to rich people in poor countries. And Macron told the crowd specifically, I understand your anger. I am not here to write a blank check 
to the regime. Well, hopefully there's more encouragement coming for actual meaningful change in Lebanon, actually capitalizing on this moment of pain to bring about real government reform. We could use that here in the United States in a lot of ways, too. This next story, this is shocking. Uh, and related to a conversation I had on Twitter where uh, I pointed out the corruption of police in the United States. Jim, did you know that there's a, there's a long history of deliberate, organized, systemic KKK infiltration of law enforcement in the United States? Uh, uh, I know you're not surprised to hear it. Yeah, I kind of set you up to not make yourself sound like a fool on that one. But if you had any specific awareness of that? Uh, I don't know any specifics. I always assumed it. Okay, so this is sort of vague. Yeah, that's going to happen. Well, you look into it, it's scary. There's there's a lot there, like more than you would think. And I, I was going back. Someone, uh, actually our friend Angela, uh, was was going back and forth with me on Twitter about this when I was, you know, or make, make generally making the case to listen to Black Lives Matter, right? Like, yeah, it's not, and, and she said that's not a current thing. Because I, the, 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 at the time, I, I, and I didn't get too in depth into this. <clears throat> I just, you know, I, I did a quick Google search and I found that there was something from like five, ten years ago of a specifically racist gang getting exposed and, and caught and blah, 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 blah. But now we have the headline about it happening right now from Yahoo.com by the LA Times. Deputies accused of being in secret societies cost L.A. County taxpayers $55 million, records show. And, like, this is how it's coming out. First saw the story, there's got to be a – and I'm like, I, 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 I was kind of hoping, you know, in terms of, like, looking for uh, confirmation of my biases – there's got to be something about racism in this. There's got to be a, a real and and for a while reading this, I was I didn't see it. I think they kind of buried the lead here. It's not just like the secret societies. Anyway, I'll read the story. You'll see. It's going to take me a while to get to the racist racist gang part. Los Angeles County has paid out roughly fifty-five million dollars in settlements in cases in which sheriff's deputies have been alleged to belong to a secret society. Records obtained by the LA Times show illuminating. The entrenched nature of a subculture that has plagued the sheriff's department for years. The figure comes from a list that includes payouts and dozens of lawsuits and claims involving deputies associated with tattooed groups accused of glorifying an aggressive style of policing. The report prepared by L.A. County attorneys lists nearly 60 cases, some of them still pending, and names eight specific cliques. The county has paid out nearly $21 million in cases beginning in the last 10 years alone, according to the document. The high cost underscores how these deputy groups, which with monikers such as the Vikings, Regulators, 3,000 Boys, and the Banditos, really, really, you can't get more creative than that? Pathetic. Have operated out of several sheriff's department stations and jails for decades, exhibiting what critics have long alleged are the violent, intimidating tactics similar in some ways to criminal street gangs. The cases involved incidents that date to 1990. Still nothing, right? Still no racism. Over the years, a succession of elected officials, elected sheriffs, excuse me, has failed to bring the subgroups under control despite multiple internal investigations and more recently a probe by the FBI. Many civil liberties advocates and county watchdogs have accused the sheriff's department of turning a blind eye 
Jonathan Sweeney, John Sweeney, attorney who has represented families of people killed by deputies, said, I think it's a willful failure. For some reason, they pride themselves, the sheriff's department, on having these violent clicks. I guess to show the public who's the boss. But, you know, what it does, it just fosters a horrible relationship between the community that these sheriffs serve. The Board of Supervisors requested the list of payouts last year after the Times reported that members of the Banditos, who operate out of the East L.A. station, were accused of assaulting other deputies during an off-duty party in 2018. One deputy was knocked unconscious. Yeah, it's not really that big of a deal until one of the king's men is harmed. Sheriff Alex Villanueva has said that he put measures in place in February that prohibit deputies from participating in clicks. Quote, the fact that I've had to address these issues, which have been festering since 1990, is an illustration of the failure of past sheriffs from addressing the issue head on. Uh, he said in a statement, adding that he transferred leadership personnel from at least one station to combat the click problem and was holding employees accountable if they failed to uphold the new policy. Inspector General Max Huntsman said last week that he was aware of no implementation whatsoever of Villanueva's new measures and that his office couldn't effectively investigate the secret society's quote because of the obstruction of the sheriff's department. Huntsman said the criminal investigation of the off-duty banditos beating amounted to a cover-up, noting that more than 20 deputies present during the incident were not required to give statements. Mm-hmm. Still going. Here we go. Lieutenant John Satterfield said investigators conducted more than 70 interviews as part of an administrative investigation of the banditos claims and were sharing information from reviews under the new click policy with the FBI. Quote, the IG continues to further this distorted narrative that his office has not provided documents or information or to investigate or provide oversight, adding that in the last 13 months, the oversight office has had access to more than 500 documents. Uh, despite, quote, despite misleading statements, the sheriff continues to provide him with access and continues to welcome oversight. <sighs> You have to slog through all of this bullshit to get to the really offensive part of the story. Like, we haven't even gotten there yet. This is so bad. So, so bad. $55 million just in payouts. I mean, how much of, the, of what's getting caught? What does it cost taxpayers of L.A. to cover up the evil from this that has come to the surface where we can look just below the surface and see that there is not real, no, no real oversight. Defenders of the deputy clique say they represent hard work and boost morale by fostering camaraderie. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. Sean Kennedy, a member of the Civilian Oversight Commission, yeah, police camaraderie goes up and then we have to pay out $55 million? Mm, no. Sean Kennedy, a member of the Civilian Oversight Commission professor at Loyola Law School, said last week that he and his students had identified at least 17 gangs, some of them historical, in the department. We are literally not exaggerating. We are not being metaphorical. We, when we say that police are gangs, and I say that in a metaphorical sense as well, that the whole thing as a uh, an umbrella gang of government, of, of law enforcement in the United States, protects the subsidiary gangs that you really can't deny are fucking gangs. The largest payout on the list, $10.1 million, went to Francisco Carrillo Jr., who spent 20 years behind bars before having a murder conviction overturned in 2011. Carrillo, who was 16 at the time of the 1991 fatal drive-by shooting, maintained his innocence 
through two trials and in prison. He sued later, claiming that deputies improperly influenced witnesses to pick his picture from a photo lineup and that deputies involved in the case were members of the Linwood Vikings, a white supremacist gang within the sheriff's department. I don't know what else to say. There's the punchline. There it is. I had to get all the way that far in the story. I mean, I my eyes are watering out of, like, anger and wanting to cry at the same time. That's what it, it, Really. There is a... Well, and I, I, don't, I don't throw around the term racism. Uh, you know, because it's assuming someone's internal state. But when you self-identify as racist and then we see you infiltrate police departments and use that color of law that qualified immunity to just suppress people who you don't like of a different color. That's about the height of evil in the world today. So, I, I mean, I, 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 we might as well, like, I, at least I don't want to even finish the story, because that was it. There's, there's another few paragraphs here, but at least this, this quote is worth sharing from Ron Kay, an attorney, who represented Carrillo, this has been a cancer of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department for decades. The only reason that this type of illegal activity and lawlessness under the color of law can survive is if the department and its administration look the other way. And they are. You know, where is this going? This is poor people. People of color. Uh, Compton Mayor Audra Brown called on State Attorney Xavier Becerra and the U.S. Justice Department to investigate whether Compton deputies had engaged in misconduct, excessive force, discriminatory policing, and improper stop searches or arrests. The city has a $22 million contract with the Sheriff's Department for patrols and other law enforcement services. What does that mean? The people of, of Compton are forced to pay the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, which hires members of racist gangs, which do racist enforcement. Again, it's it's, it's a punchline that needs no follow-up. Like, what can you say after just recognizing the fundamental evil of what this is? You wonder why people don't trust the police. Uh, So, um, as... uh, as Brown said, the uh, Mayor Compton in a statement, we demand the same treatment that deputies provide to the residents of Malibu, Rancho Palos Verdes, and other affluent communities. And according to the size of our contract with the Sheriff's Department, we have 22 million reasons to expect it. Well, sadly, I, as, as if it, it, Mayor Brown, if you are doing a genuine job attempting to represent the people of Compton, good luck. But you're really ignoring the larger issue here that the entire system of law enforcement in this country is set up to serve the main purpose of government. The rich get richer, the poor get poor. You look at the origins of the police force in this country, Pinkertons and runaway slave catchers, which protect property. And back then, people were property. And really, now, under this system, the ends 
the goals are the same. The means of violent suppression are the same. Maybe it's not as vicious overall as it used to be, but it is just as wrong. All right. A few more stories to breeze through here. Republicans aid Kanye West's bid to get on the 2020 ballot from DNYUZ.com. And uh, I don't need to get into the story. I just, this is funny. And it kind of explains it. Kanye goes to the White House months ago, then turns on Trump, then runs against him. Now, the big question for me here is, is Kanye in on it or is he a useful idiot? And I hate to say that he's probably a useful idiot because of his mental health issue and lack of real political grounding. And I, I, he, this is, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, pulling this out of my butt or, you know, exaggerating. I'm going from what we know publicly declared about him being manic, depressive, bipolar. I think he's, he's been... I don't want to even cast aspersions because I don't know the exact words. But, like, we've seen this talked about publicly. But how easy is it if you're a shady Republican consultant con man to manipulate Kanye into running in a way that will take more votes from the Democrats? Is, is, that, the, is that the ace up his sleeve that Trump has, that Kanye's going to run and that's going to... Like, is up to the story here. Let's get to the story. At least three people who have been active in Republican politics are linked to Kanye West's attempt to get on the presidential ballot this year. The connection raises questions about the aims of the entertainer's effort and whether it is regarded within the GOP as a spoiler campaign that could aid President Trump, even as those close to Mr. West have expressed concerns about his mental health as he enters the political arena. I mean, it's, it's, it's also transparent. You know, I, I don't know what exactly is happening behind the scenes, who's in on it or not, and whether even Kanye is. Or, like I said, he could be a useful idiot. But this is so obvious. So they've been connecting, collecting signatures for the West campaign in three states. Uh, this guy, Mr. Jacob, Mark Jacoby, was arrested on voter fraud charges in 2008 while he was doing work for the California Republican Party and later pled guilty to a misdemeanor. Said in a statement, his company was nonpartisan work for all political parties. We do not comment on any current climates, but like all Americans, anyone who's qualified to stand for election has the right to run. How much you want to bet those three states are very strategic to the Electoral College chances of Donald Trump actually winning re-election? I don't think you can count him out at this point. Kanye is a pretty big ace up your sleeve to be able to play here. Uh, we're going to – oh, geez. I guess I, I'm, I got to cover the stories of footnote just to get out of the way. Uh, from the Associated Press, migrant kids held in U.S. hotels then expelled. The Trump administration is detaining immigrant children as young as one in hotels sometimes for weeks before deporting them to their home countries under policies that have effectively shut down the nation's asylum system during the coronavirus pandemic, according to documents. And it's just, woo, unintentional child trafficking, uh, but they know that this is happening. Like, And if you think I'm, I'm exaggerating with this, no, the next headline, and, and I'm sad that we don't get to really get into this you know, more thoroughly. If, if people want, if, if, if people want me, maybe we'll do a uh, pedophilia and child trafficking block next week. Although tomorrow... Speaking of shady Republican operatives, we have Roger Stone finally coming on the show. Going to be a big one tomorrow. Uh, but the other story uh, related to this newspunch.com, Philadelphia Child Protection Agency, caught running pedophile ring. Hmm. You put that together with the AP story about children, you know, immigrants being moved in detention centers. You know, I'm, I've been generally skeptical 
of widespread human trafficking with with pedophilia. But you know, like how wide? You know, if Jeffrey Epstein is the one, you know, example, and there are a few other people doing things like him, where it's uh, underage women. They don't want to discount that. I don't want to, you know, because 17 and, and 16-year-old girls are being trafficked. I don't want to diminish their victimhood in any way. But I will say I'm a lot more concerned with an immigrant child who's one year old or two years old, separated from their parent by the system, return to their home country. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a way bigger threat here. And uh, it is something that I am paying attention to and, and probably will get into in the future. A uh, couple exciting things with tech news we'll come back to. Elon Musk's Neuralink brain chip will soon allow users to take charge of moods and emotions. Maybe we'll get a tech block in tomorrow or next week. We do have to catch up on we do catch up on coronavirus stupidity. Uh, and another one from goodnewsnetwork.org, genuine good news. This inexpensive new smart mask can amplify the speaker's voice and translate speech into eight languages. We already have this with your phone. You know, you can talk and you know, it says text, but you put on a mask. And I, I, I don't know if it's necessary for Here's a mask I can get behind, you know, and it's like, uh, I, I hope that this is just sort of the necessity of the technology, not being used for some germaphobic reason. But how cool is that to be able to put on a device and talk into it? And here the point of the mask is not blocking a virus. It's absorbing your sound, what you're speaking, in order to be able to project it out forward through a speaker. That's pretty freaking cool. So anyway, and then we have, we'll we probably get to this. Uh, Tampa team pleads not guilty as documents reveal how feds practice Twitter hack case. This is a big Twitter hack story from... Uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago now where some very high-profile Twitter users got hacked and uh, this guy was able to get $117,000 in Bitcoin and then goes to court and hackers hacking. They're using Zoom. And this is this is where government law enforcement is today. They're using Zoom in courtrooms and it's hackable to the point where at this court hearing, people played rap music and porn. Like, actually interrupted the hearing. And it was the purpose of the hearing was to discuss reducing bail terms set for this 17-year-old Tampa resident arrested last Friday over the hack. Um, the interruptions with music, shrieking, and pornography became so frequent that Judge Christopher Nash ended up suspending it for a while. And he didn't win the hearing. He didn't get bailed out. Uh, he was denied, basically, he got, got bailed out. So, anyway. I guess that's all we need to cover for that story. Maybe we'll come back to it. Let's do comments and good news and put a bow on this one, shall we? Yeah, yeah. I'm a statist and upset on government running kids. You always hear about foster kids being abused here in the U.S. Yeah, so that's, so that's the other big side of the <laughs> problem here that, that I didn't touch on just now. But, um, yes, well, CPS, I guess the, the pedophile ring in, in Philadelphia, that's what that was, right? It's, it's a different, maybe different agency. And, oh, geez, just the way they, they have a different acronym for their, their agency that does this in every state. But, yeah, uh, the, the child trafficking trafficking and, and abuse around foster care in this country is another. It's one of those issues like, you know, I should have been talking about it with the campaign. Uh, you know, veteran suicide is, is one that gets swept under the rug. Um, it is it is a fool. Yeah. We'll do a block on that. When I see a few good news stories next time, you know, maybe maybe we'll use that AP story. And that uh, whatever the the one with the Philadelphia one, and we'll, we'll put together a child trafficking news block. Sorry that we have to do that. I need man, that makes me really need some tobacco. Just talking about that that, that tragedy. 
Any any other any other hot comments today, Jim? Mars life. You do realize policing start as white supremacy that started to protect the elites from the natives. Inherently racist organizations. Police are not even government. They are private corporations. You know, so I did mention the tracing back to slavery and the Pinkertons, and I think most academics link that to the actual start of modern policing. I had not heard the comparison to uh, European skills like Native Americans. Yeah. But I suppose, and, and, and maybe it doesn't have the same institutional connection, but certainly the cultural societal roots. Yeah, makes sense. Healthy disrespect. Uh, masks are child traffickers' favorite thing. That's a whole nother angle on the on that. Wow! Yeah. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it's not that maybe there's that whole conspiracy, but yeah, I mean, if the, I mean, think about it, and again, I don't want to get too into paranoid theory, but there's a certain amount of <clears throat> dynamic behind this that stands to reason. If you are a pedophile, and you are smart, and you are willing to lie, you have that psychopathy or sociology that, you know, essentially allows you to interact with human beings without a consciousness. You're going to see positions of institutional power. Our systems allow for this. Are there more psychopathic pedophiles in positions of U.S. government power than the general population? Yeah. Bet your ass. How much? I don't know. Can't hard to speculate. Uh, but certainly everybody who's there for that reason, as opposed to just being a regular run-of-the-mill power-hungry psychopath or sociopath, um, yeah, they have the extra incentive to support mask mandates, or at least they're going, ooh, we made it it normal to wear masks in America from now, and this is kind of like, from now on, right, and they've been doing this in other countries, like in Asia, wearing masks in public, I mean, to the point that you can, you know, smuggle kids around, I don't know, it it only needs to be acceptable, it only needs to be acceptable enough that you can go from a building to public, to a vehicle, to another building, without showing your face. That that does not arouse, and there's enough, there's enough of that in common practice that you can't track people with that. You can't, oh, there's, there's a guy wearing a mask. No, it's just like, ugh. as long as it's even 10% of the population still wearing masks from Corona fear, yeah, all of the criminal child trafficking uh, elements can get away with moving people in public without showing their faces. And that's, uh, that, 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 uh, can't be good. Can't be good. So I hope you have some good news to go out. Let's uh, <laughs> see. Goodnewsnetwork.org. Can you take us home today on a good note? 60 years ago today, the 18-year-old singer Chubby Checker performed his version of The Twist on Dick Clark's show American Bandstand, starting a worldwide dance craze phenomenon on television for the first time. The song reached number one. On Billboard's Hot 100 chart, and then again for the second time in 1962, making it the only song to hit number one twice. And when we get organized with our censorship-free space, we can play that music for you without triggering the content censors. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I had to tack some bad news on there. But yeah, go listen to The Twist by Chubby Checker if you want to be in a good mood when we sign off here in a minute. On this day in 1538, Bogota, Colombia was founded. Start of a city? I don't know. We're going to rate all these. 
Yeah. Probably a plus two or three. People coming together, living together under, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Like a relationship. It's always great in the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. Now, yeah, becoming a modern state of city. Who knows? On this day in 1911, the television comedian. No, don't play it. Don't play it. All right. I'll do 15 things. All right. There you go. I can sing it, though. See? This is the censorship of IP torturing you. Hey, do that twist. All right. I'll stop. Um, So Lucille Ball was born on this day in 1911, TV comedian. Um, Yeah, that's pure positive. Great news. That's a 10. Yeah. Independence was claimed by Bolivia in 1825 and Jamaica in 1962. Uh, There might be some bad news. Confluent with that, but in and of itself, nations declaring independence from bigger nations, decentralization, localization, right to self-determination. Good news. That's 10 for sure. And on this day in 1965, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed into U.S. law aiming to prohibit racial discrimination voting rights guaranteed by the 14th and 15th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution, especially in the South where minority rights were not being enforced. Generally a good thing. Got to subtract some points for reinforcing mob rule and violent government. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I mean, yeah, obviously, if the viciousness of the racket is extended slightly less to minorities, in and of itself, that's a great thing. That's purely positive. Uh, But the way that it happened, mm, I don't know, five or six, I'll I'll give that a six. The Beatles, on this day in 1965, released their fifth album, Ten Help. The soundtrack to their second film also included The Night Before. You've got to hide your love away. You're going to lose that girl. I could sing. Tickets arrive. I could sing all those songs, start to finish, and I will spare you. On this day in 1991, Tim Berners-Lee released files describing his idea for the World Wide Web. That's a 10. Pure innovation. Doi Takako, on this day in 1991, became Japan's first female speaker of the House of Representatives. Again, that's kind of like Elena Kagan. You know, we had we, this is where we first battled out the scoring system yesterday. It was a minus two and a plus one. Yeah, I give that one a minus one. Um, on this day in 1997, British Prime Minister Tony Blair shook hands with Sin Fine, President Gary Adams, the first meeting in 76 years between a British leader and IRA ally. Yeah, this is the process of peace. You know, it's, it's a seven or eight positive there. Um, so now we got 2009 on this day. Sonia Sotomayor was confirmed as the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice by a Senate vote of 6831. Same thing as Kagan, minus one. You know, good thing for general minority acceptance, bad thing for the health of the state. Um, and let's see, on, the, uh, on this day in 1926, American Gertrude Ederte became the first woman to swim across the English Channel called the Queen of the Wave. She was an Olympic champion swimmer and former world record holder in five events. That's a 10. Moving humanity's athletic accomplishments forward. And uh, we'll skip all the rest. There's a lot of fun stuff. If you want to check it out, goodnewsnetwork.org. The link will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was a fun show. Mwah. Thank you for everybody making the show possible. Join us on Patreon, uh, especially to our producer club members signing up for $10 a month. Mwah, please, peace and love, y'all. Choose happiness and be excellent to each other. Thank <laughs> you.